I'd like for you to think back with me to another time and to another era. Think back with me to a time before cell phones, before Facebook, before Instant Messenger, even before email. Mm. Think back with me to a time when communication between friends who lived any distance apart was a pen, a paper, and a postage stamp. That's right. I'm talking about the days you used to write letters. Well, there's a couple of people that still do. I realize that there are some of you who never knew those days. And that's a shame. But for the rest of us, those who have lived through that era in our world history, I want to invite you to think for a second. Because in those days, when you were writing letters, you actually had to think before writing something down. There was no backspace, no delete button on your favorite pad of stationery. If you scribbled out a word, the page looked messy. And for someone with OCD tendencies, that's not good. And even whiteout didn't look good on the page. So you actually had to put some thought into what you were going to say before you put pen to paper. Those were good days. Amen? Amen. Imagine with me for a few moments that you were back in that day, and you've decided to write a letter to a friend. To someone you consider to be on your inner circle. Someone you've spent much time, much energy, given much love to. If you were writing a letter, a personal letter to that person, how would you begin? What would you say first? What's your opening line? Okay, good. We got dear. That's your opening word. Dear whoever. Okay. I told you I'd call on you. What's your opening line? Dear mom. Dear mom, what else? You got a couple, a little, little bit more. How did your summer go? Dear mom, how did your summer go? Okay, good. So now we have an example from one of our younger ones who actually, does he know what a letter is? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Perfect. So go beyond dear so and so. What is your first line? I miss you. Okay, what else? How are you? Good. Ellie? How's life? Uh, hey, I have, I've realized I haven't written for a long time. Do you remember me? What else? How would you begin? What's your opening line? JJ? Hi. I asked somebody earlier this week, what would your opening line, what, what would you say? And they said, yo. <laughs> What's up? Anybody else? Your opening line? Okay. Wow. You guys have short opening lines. Over the next several months, uh, besides a series in Advent, we're going to be spending time looking at three letters in Scripture, uh, the pastoral letters. We're going to look at two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and one that he wrote to Titus. Now, why should we look at them? 
Well, I can give you a couple of reasons. From a scriptural standpoint, I think we can learn from these letters. We can learn from what the Apostle Paul told these young men as to uh, as regards to the churches that they were overseeing. We can learn from why he wrote those letters. And he actually told us in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, says, I'm writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So one reason to study these? We can, re- we can learn how a church should act. Now he gives us another reason in his second letter to Timothy. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. And God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. That's reason enough to study these letters, but I can give you a couple other reasons. Uh, As I've been reading over these, I've realized, wow, these really do fit with our church's mission, vision, and values. Over the next several months, I hope to show you how. Now, Also, over sabbatical, Abby, for the both of us, wrote quite a few postcards. And we've had several people tell us how meaningful they were. Letters are personal. My mom writes a letter to our family every single week, and I look forward to getting it, to hearing how she's doing, how my dad's doing, to what's going on in their life. Letters are personal. They're full of love. And if we can read Scripture like that, it'd be a good thing. Amen? Amen. Amen. Another reason. While in Denver this, uh, this past summer, I was driving to Costco after, picking, after dropping off the boys at the gymnastics gym where they were training in, and uh, I had been kind of wrestling with God, not wrestling, praying, God, where, when I get back, whenever that's going to be, you know, end of September, where should, we, where should we go? What should we do? And, and he very clearly spoke to my heart and said, you spend time in Paul's letters. I didn't know which ones. I didn't know how long. I didn't know why. But I want to listen. I could probably give us more reasons why we should look at these letters, but that's enough for today. I want to pray, and then we will open up the letter that Paul writes and see what he has to say. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you this morning. Um, I guess I'm eager to know what you will say to us through your word. And God, I'm excited that we get to hear that from, from a letter from one guy to another. I pray, Father, you would give us willing hearts and the ability to listen. I pray that we would hear your heart in these letters. And I pray, Father, for guidance uh, for me and for us as we we read all three of these these letters and uh, try and figure out what it means for us. I pray your protection, too. God, this is your word to us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's your opening line? That's what I asked you moments ago. This morning, we're going to look at the opening line of Paul in his letter to Titus. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn there with me. If you're not sure where it is, go to the middle and then head towards the back. It's closer to the back than it is towards the middle. As you're turning there, just a little history on this man named Titus and on the island of Crete where he is working. We don't know too much about Titus, uh, but Scripture gives us a little bit of insight He was a Gentile converted to Christ. We see that in Galatians chapter 2. We know that he came with Paul when Paul returned from a 14-year stint in the provinces of Cilicia and Syria. 
We know that Titus was called upon by Paul to help in some troublesome situations in the church in Corinth. We know that Paul trusted Titus enough to send him to collect the financial gifts from the churches in Macedonia to the church in Jerusalem. Now, Paul has some great names for Titus. He calls him a true son, a brother, a sharer in the work and toil, and a man who walked in the same spirit as Paul. I've got scripture references for each of those if you're interested. Other than that, we don't know too much else about this guy named Titus. Now, what do we know about the island that he worked on? Well, it's an island in the Mediterranean Sea, south of, well, I'm terrible with maps, south of Greece, okay? It's a, uh, it was a Roman province, made that in 71 BC, which was one of the last places that Rome took over. Crete was known for good sea trade. It was known for piracy. It was known for the legendary hundred cities and for much intercity fighting. It had a legal code that awarded women certain freedoms not enjoyed elsewhere in the Greek and Roman world. And it had a religiously diverse landscape, notable for its retelling of the story of Zeus, whom Cretans, not Croutons, Cretans believed lived and died on that island. So the island had a reputation of religious deceitfulness, had a reputation of being self-indulgent, belligerent, wild, an immoral society, sexually promiscuous, gluttonous at feasts, and a place where lying was the norm. To speak of a Cretan point of view was to speak of deception. Sounds like a wonderful place to plant some churches and help them grow, yes? No problem. Titus, you go there. I'll write you a letter about it. Hopefully you've made it to Titus in your Bibles. I'm going to read just the opening sentence in Greek, which for us is the first four verses. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. This letter is from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. This truth gives them confidence or hope that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. And now, at just the right time, he has revealed this message, which we announce to everyone. It is by the command of God our Savior that I have been entrusted with this work for him. I am writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. This is just the opening sentence in the Greek. That's Paul's opening line. And I want you to hear it from a different translation too. The English standard, which is, is more of a word-for-word translation. He reads like this. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Paul's opening line. So let's spend some time in there. Well, what is his opening line? Well, he begins by saying, this is Paul. I wrote this. Now, for us, we're like, duh, right? 
And from the time this letter was first penned up until the beginning of the 19th century, everybody else was like, well, duh, right? Paul wrote that. But since the beginning of the 19th century, there has been some debate. There has been some dialogue. Biblical scholars have looked at some of the words that Paul uses in these letters. He's looked at some of the words that he doesn't use. It looks at some of the heresy, the Gnostic heresy that these letters seems to address. Some of the perceived focus and several other reasons. And since the beginning of the 19th century, people have said, huh, maybe Paul didn't write it. For our purposes, we're going to assume that this was the Apostle Paul that wrote it. So he begins, Paul. And then he calls himself a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The term slave of God is doulos theou, and it's different than how Paul normally starts his other letters. He usually calls himself a slave of Christ, but by calling himself a slave of God, what he's doing is tying himself back to the Old Testament prophets who were given this name. Moses was called a doulos theou in Joshua chapter 1. Moses' mentor, Joshua, was called the same thing. Other great Old Testament prophets also had this term used of them. So if there were any new Christian converts on the island of Crete that had Jewish roots, by saying he was a slave of God, Paul was tying himself back to the Yahweh of old. For those who didn't have Jewish roots, he said, I'm also an apostle of Jesus Christ. What Paul is doing here in the early stages of his opening line is establishing his own authority. When I asked you guys what your opening line was, I noticed that none of you said, Dear so-and-so, I'm your mom, you must listen, that's why. None of you said, So I'm writing this letter on behalf of the board of directors because, oh, by the way, I'm the vice president and you have to listen to me. You didn't establish your authority to be heard first. Maybe we start letters differently today. Maybe Paul needed to do that. Because I think he assumed that more than just Titus would be reading this letter. So for the others, he had to say, I have some authority to speak here. Throughout the course of the sermon this morning, instead of waiting till the end to give applications, I'm going to just throw out some questions to ponder at home. You can see those questions on your bulletin insert. First, take home to ponder. Do you guys see yourselves in the same conversation as the saints of old, as the prophets who spoke long ago? Do you see yourself and the insight you can pass on to others as demanding others' attention? And if not, why? Aren't you part of the story that God is continuing to tell? The story that God desires to pass on to others? Something to think about. Let's move on. Once Paul clarified who he was, he went on to proclaim his message. And what is Paul's message? Well, he says this letter is from Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen. Paul was sent to proclaim faith, or sent for the sake of faith. Now understand this, in most of Paul's letters to the churches, when he speaks of faith, he's speaking of faith in a person. Faith in Jesus Christ, and that Jesus was who he says he was. That's also the case in these letters as well, but there's an added dimension. When Paul speaks of faith here, he's speaking of right belief. That's orthodoxy. So Paul was saying he was sent to proclaim, to further, to strengthen, to bring about a right understanding. 
And we're going to see that fleshed out over the next four weeks. Paul wanted the faith of people on an island known for its religious diversity. He wanted them to have correct faith, correct belief. And he wanted this correct belief to be had by the people God had chosen. For the sake of the faith of God's elect, it says. Now, I'm not going to get into the age-old debate of elect versus non-elect. My understanding of this phrase in this context, in this letter, is that Paul is saying those God has chosen are the ones who come to the correct understanding, who have faith, who have that right orthodoxy. Make sense? Okay, so far so good. It's the beginning of an opening line. Paul continues. He says, I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth. Paul's mission, Paul's message was to proclaim faith to God's chosen so they could know the truth. So they could know it. This introduction is loaded. The term know, the root word of it is gnosis. I think it's, did I write it down up there? No? Okay, that. Oh, no. I didn't write it down. G-N-O-S-I-S. Gnosis. Okay. I mentioned the Gnostic heresy in what the island of Crete was known for. This heresy, in brief, claimed that people could only get to know God, could only get to understand or experience God, who they felt was a God who was super far removed from all of creation because creation was bad and God could have nothing to do with it. So in order to get to know this God... It required a bunch of secret knowledge. You only grew an understanding of God by progressing up different levels of spiritual insight, which only a select few ever had. So secret knowledge, secret gnosis, held by or understood by only a select few. It's a short summary of the Gnostic heresy. I think what Paul is doing in the opening lines of this, of this letter is he's swinging the doors wide open to truth, to more than just a select few. You kind of see that in verse 3 where he says, I'm announcing this to everyone. He wanted the people to know the truth. Now, the Greek word for truth is aletheia. It means more than just if something is accurate or not. In Greek antiquity, aletheia meant the truth of an idea, truth in the moral sphere, divine truth revealed to man. Aletheia was synonymous. It was the same as reality. So what Paul is saying is, I want to teach people what's really real. You guys could know without secret knowledge what's really real. Here's a take-home question to chew on. Do you feel that what you learn here on a Sunday morning, do you feel that what you read in here in the pages of Scripture, do you believe that's what's really real? Do you believe that the worldview you hold is scripturally based? And if so, are you willing to share that with others? I mean, are are you willing to go to somebody and say, hey, you know what? I know. No, I, I know. I know what's really real. And it has to do with the story of Jesus in Scripture. If you believe this is what's really real, shouldn't we be sharing it with others so they too can have the opportunity to believe? Or they can have the opportunity not to believe. So they can know. That's what Paul is doing in his opening line. But now watch. Paul has this great jump in ideas. 
more than just knowing what was real. Paul was saying in his opening line of his letter to Titus that truth, that reality, should teach people how to live. Still in verse 1, I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. Some of your versions are going to say, which accords to godliness. Paul was saying the truth, the reality, would teach people how to live godly lives. And I love this, because in just a matter of a few Greek words and a prepositional phrase, Paul says he wants people to believe the right things, orthodoxy, so that it would lead them to behaving a certain way. That's orthopraxy. Right action, godliness. The balance of faith and conduct. Paul wasn't satisfied with just head knowledge Christians. He wanted action too. And much of the rest of this letter to Titus is Paul trying to sort out the balance of right action and right belief. Next thing to take home and chew on. Does what you believe in here translate into your actions? Is your belief leading you to godliness? All this, and we're still in verse 1. Let's move to verse 2. I'm going to read it from the screen first. This is Titus chapter 1, verse 2 in the English Standard. It says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The New Living Translation reads, This truth gives them confidence, gives them hope that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. Let's see if I can simplify so far. So far in the opening lines of Paul's letter to Titus, he's saying, I wrote this, and you really ought to listen to me because I'm a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus. I want the people God knows is going to believe right, to believe right, and I want that Truth, that reality, to lead them to godliness, to to affect people's actions. And now what he's saying in verse 2 is that when you understand what's really real, you can have a hope for, you can have a confidence in eternal life. Eternal life being the share of God's life. Central to the idea of hope of eternal life in the New Testament is the eternal life that, that Paul is talking about. It's the confidence of God's promises for the future which Paul says God promised before time began, before the ages began. Wouldn't it be great to know what the future held? I'm I'm talking more than just who's going to win the World Series, you know, the Mets or the Royals. I'm talking about the future as in forever and ever, amen. This is a question that humanity has been wrestling with for a long time. And Paul says, we can know. I have the reality. I know the reality that can assure you that you can have hope of What will take place? How do I know that? God promised it. And the people of Crete say, so? God promised it. Big deal. Verse 2 says God never lies. People of Crete, well, let me me give you a glimpse into my my inner life. I don't like lying. It's one of my pet peeves. And if I sense that somebody's lying, even if it's just a little white lie, it really, really gets to me. And it makes me question everything that person says from there on out. 
And I'm not talking just like, oh, I'm going to question it for a week or for a month. I mean, maybe I have issues, but I question it for years and years and years. Lying. Okay? We today know that with 2,000 plus years of church history, we know that God does not lie. The story of Scripture tells us that. I got three verses here. First one is in Numbers 23. I think I have three verses. I don't. Okay, well, take a pen, write them down. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. They might be in your bulletin. Okay, perfect. Other one's Romans chapter 3, verse 4, and the other one's Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. All of those different portions of Scripture come back to the fact that God does not lie. Now, we know that. But remember where Titus is. Okay, He's on the island of Crete, and remember the island of Crete was known for lying. One author said that Cretans regarded lying as culturally acceptable. In fact, one of the biggest Cretan pagan theologies spoke of the god Zeus. I mentioned him earlier. Zeus was said to have lied to have intimacy, to have marital relationships with a human woman by taking the form of her husband. And this Zeus was held as the epitome of all things virtuous. To top it all off, Cretans believed that he lived, died, and had a tomb on the island of Crete, which according to a third century scholar and poet named Callimachus, that was a lie. Zeus didn't live there. So a lying God as the epitome of all things virtuous. Interesting history lesson. No wonder Paul has to say, God does not lie. He does so, he does it using a very choice word. The word is apsudes, and this is the only place in all of Scripture this word is used. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find this word used in any other Jewish or Christian writing. But you'll find this word used to describe prophetic figures in Greek antiquity. So by using this specific word, Paul is reminding those in Crete. He's reminding the Cretan recipients of this unique aspect of their pagan heritage. He's saying, well, you know this. He's being intentional with his words. Paul is reaching into the minds and hearts of those who could be reading his letter, reaching even into the beginning of his opening lines to try and get their attention. He's speaking what they know, what they believe, what they practice. Here's a question for you guys to take home and chew on. When you speak to others about what you believe, about your faith, the story you view as real, do you connect it to their lives? Do you use language they'd understand that would connect to their heart? And if you don't, maybe it's time to become a missionary to the culture around you, taking time to learn its story and its vernacular, its language. Paul did this, and he continues to do so in verse 3. Paul says, and now, at just the right time, he has revealed this message. God has revealed this message, which we announce to everyone. It's by the command of God our Savior that I have been entrusted with this work for him. Now, it's actually more accurately translated again in the English Standard Version, and I think I, I had that one up there. Perfect. At the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. That's a mouthful, but I want you to see something. 
In verse 3, Paul is subtly bringing the message of Jesus, the gospel, into the picture. Do you see it in verse 3? What's Jesus called? Savior. Okay. What else? Say that again. I heard. Light. Okay. What's that? The Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? In John chapter 6, Jesus speaks about having the words of life. When Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, he, he said, cling to the word of life. In verse 3, what Paul is doing when he's writing Titus is he's very subtly inserting something like the word. So that when people would go back and read and reread and reread the letter, they may think, huh, did he mean something by that? Is there something deeper behind this? Is he nuancing something? This past summer, I read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's biography. It's a fantastic read. And in that, he spoke of, uh, the author spoke of Dietrich's letters home when he was in jail before he got executed. Often there was layers upon layers of secret and coded messages in the letters. That way his family could understand what he was saying, but the prison guards couldn't. I think Paul was doing just a little bit of that using some secret coded stuff by using the word word. But I think there's other parts in here where he's just being plain obvious. At the end of verse 3, Paul comes back very obviously, I think, back to what he was doing in the first part of his intro. He's validating his ministry and he's saying why he should be listened to. He says, it is by the command of God our Savior that I have been entrusted with this work for him. Or, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul was saying he really needed to be listened to due to what he was entrusted with and by whom he had been entrusted. You catch that? Paul was saying he needed to be listened to due to what he was entrusted with and by whom he had been entrusted. Here's a question for you to chew on at home. Do you realize that you have been entrusted with a message from Christ? Do you realize that Christ has charged you to go, make, baptize, teach this message? And if you realize that, do you do it with the same fervency with which we see Paul talking about here? It's interesting. At the end of verse 3, you see it up there, Paul uses the phrase, God as Savior. Because at the end of verse 4, Paul calls Jesus Savior. As part of a linking of God's salvific work to both God the Father and Jesus the Son. And I tell you what, I'm not going to go into that this morning because I see some eyes starting to close. And I see others starting to gloss over. So we're going to wrap this up. Verse 4, where we finally get to some language that you guys could grab a hold of. Some language you would say, ah, I would say that. Paul says, I am writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. Ah, a common faith. A true son. This is a term of endearment towards Titus. But Paul's also a genius, and he, he always has double meanings. Maybe I shouldn't say always. A lot of times there's, there's double meanings. In a father-son relationship in that time, Paul very well could have been saying, look, Titus, as my son, you're obligated to preach and teach the same message that I am preaching and teaching. 
But even in that obligation, I'm giving you the authority to represent me, the Apostle Paul, in that process. So a double meaning. The opening line of Paul's letter closes like this. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. You guys have heard this before. In fact, Pastor Ron started the book of Revelation pointing out that same phrase, grace and peace. What Paul is saying, he's praying a prayer or asking a blessing, requesting that God provide Titus what he needed to carry out his work on this island of Crete. That's the grace portion. And the peace portion is to keep Titus in a protective calm when his equilibrium would be shaking. Because in a place like that, you got to figure it would be. That's how Paul finishes his first sentence in this letter to Titus. Now, hearing all of this, if I were to ask you again, what's your opening line? Would you change it? Would you change what was important for you to say on the top of your page? I've given you a few questions, a few thoughts to ponder as you go home. I encourage you to do that later. I encourage you guys, read the letter of Titus this week. Read it multiple times. It's short. There's a lot more to come in this letter, and I'm looking forward to spending time reading it with you over the next several weeks. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, an opening sentence in a letter from the Apostle Paul to Titus. I thank you for what we can see in this letter. And Lord, I, I thank you that in some way or another, that this letter, this opening line, should challenge us. I pray that you would, if it has challenged us, uh, don't let that challenge slip away easily. Uh, may we chew on it. May it marinate in our souls today and over the next week. And Lord, again, I ask that you would be preparing our hearts as we come back together next week to see what you will say through a letter from one man to another. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I leave you this morning with what Paul wrote to Titus. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. Amen? Amen. And amen.